Um, we've got Akin reading our Bible passage today. So Akin will be reading Luke 3, verses 1 to 22. I think I saw Akin here. If you're there. Oh, brilliant, Akin. Are you ready? Super. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod Tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip Tetrarch of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias Tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of words of Isaiah, the prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all the people will see God's salvation. John said to the crowds, coming out to be baptised by him, You brother vipers, who warned you to, to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What shall we do then? the crowd asked. John answered, Anyone who has two shirts, shirts should share with the one who has none, and anyone who has food should do the same. Even tax collectors came to be baptised. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you are required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, and what shall we, should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their heart if John possibly might possibly be the Messiah. John answered them all. I baptise you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come. The straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptise you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clay his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. He will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and proclaimed, proclaimed the good news to them. But when John rebuked Herod the Tetrarch because of his marriage to Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the other things, evil things he had done, Herod 
added this to them all. He locked John up in prison. When all the people were being baptised, Jesus was baptised too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. A voice came from heaven. You are my son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. Amen. Thank you, Akin. That was fantastic reading. We know that we can come to you again then. <laughs> Thank you. Before we um, go to Tim, I'll just pray for you, Tim. Lord, we thank you um, that we've had such wonderful things already this morning with Karis and Alex's singing, Lord, with Akin's beautiful reading, Lord. And we just really pray for Tim now. I Sorry, I think I was muted. <laughs> I was praying. <laughs> um, Lord, we just lift him up to you. Um, yeah, we thank you for him. Give him your words of wisdom, Lord. And um, Lord, let us be open to hearing what he has to tell us. Amen. Over to you, Tim. Well, thank you, Cara. And uh, thank you, Akin. That was a fantastic reading. So uh, very well done. It was really great. Um, well, it's good to be back with you today, um, a couple of months after the last time I was here, uh, last time lockdown had just started. We're in a different season now and other world events are, of course, been to the fore recently. So I'd like to show you a picture of a person that will come up as, as my background. Uh, I don't imagine there'll be anyone here who doesn't know who this is, but unless you've been having a completely media-free fortnight, this is uh, George Floyd. Uh, the black man who was killed by a policeman kneeling on his neck in Minneapolis just under two weeks ago. I want to use this uh, picture a, a number of times as I preach because I want to go through the passage you've given me, Luke chapter 3, and pause from time to time and ask, well, okay, what does this text say to us today? It was God's word when it was written, and it's God's word now, so is there anything we can glean from it for our very immediate situation? However, as ever, we're going to start with an explanation of the context of this chapter. This is kind of like the second start to the Gospel of Luke, isn't it? And if you're reading, say, a biography of a great sportswoman or man, you have the obligatory opening chapter that tells you about, I don't know, their, their parents and their schooling and their hometown. But the story really starts when the sports person signs their first pro contract or wins their first pro tournament or race. So the background may be interesting, it, it predates their identity as a runner or a tennis player or a footballer. Well, so it is here. You know, we, we've had the birth story, we've had the childhood memory, but now the story really starts. And that's why we get this introduction. In the 15th year of Tiberius, when Pilate was this and Herod was that and Caiaphas was something else altogether, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the desert. And now the story starts and the scene begins to be set for Jesus's public ministry. And this opening serves two purposes. First of all, it grounds a story in real life. Uh, the story that is to follow, the, the story of Jesus is not a, a fanciful myth set in a land uh, far, far away in a time long, long ago. It's a story grounded in a particular slice of history, geography, 
and politics. And second, this opening is deliberately reminiscent of the openings of Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, to name but three of the Old Testament prophets. Jeremiah verse one, uh, chapter one, verse two says, for example, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah in the 13th year of the reign of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah, and through the reign of Jehoiakim, etc., etc., etc. The point is, John the Baptist, like them, is a prophet. And at a certain moment of history, the word of God came to him. And you will have heard me say before, probably, that, that John is in many ways the final Old Testament prophet. I mean, he appears in the New Testament, but he is the last prophet to prepare the way for and point towards the coming of the Messiah. So, back to George Floyd. In our times, in these days of uh, chronic racism in the States and in this country too, in these days of division of white versus black, of resident versus immigrant, of police versus citizen, of liberal versus conservative. Where is the word of God? Where is the word of God that came like that which came to John the Baptist? Now, of course, <laughs> the word is here. But we, are, we are privileged far beyond the Old Testament prophets. We have the word of God, Jesus revealed through the word of God, the Bible. But where is the word in the public sphere? Where is the prophetic word of God that unites people behind a cause such that in John the Baptist's time, crowds flocked to him? Where is the word of God that causes people to repent of their sin such that in John the Baptist's time, all the people were getting baptised? Where is the word of God that ruffles the feathers of the powerful, that calls them a brood of vipers, that strips away their entitlement, that causes political upset such that in John the Baptist's day, he ended up arrested? Where is the word of God in the 67th year of the reign of Queen Elizabeth II when Boris Johnson was Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, the country came to a standstill because of a virus and the world was shocked by the murder of a black man? Where is a prophetic word of God spoken into the public sphere today that comes from the church and not from other commentators? Perhaps we should do two things. We should pray that God raises up prophets for our day. Uh, people, I suppose, uh, like Martin Luther King, people who combine a passion for people and justice with a passion for Jesus and who will speak to nations. And we should pray for the courage to be bringers of the word of God to people we know where we are. And we'll come back to that second point a bit later. So the word of God comes to John the Baptist. Then it says he traveled around the Jordan, that is the river Jordan, because it's good to have a river nearby for the next bit. He went and preached a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. To repent is to turn from the direction you were going in and to start heading in the other direction. And the baptism that John offered here symbolizes that a person has been cleansed from that old way of life, from that original direction, if you like. Now, this is, this is not Christian baptism, by the way. It's John's baptism. And you can look later if you want to Acts chapter 19 to see there is a distinction. John's baptism is only half Christian baptism. When we get baptised, yes, we symbolise being cleansed from our sin, 
but we also symbolize rising again to a new spirit-filled life. And for that bit, we need more than John. We need Jesus. And that is exactly what John the Baptist was saying. His ministry as a last prophet of the Old Testament era was to baptize people as preparation for something more. The people were being prepared for the coming of the new life that Jesus would bring. It's like you, you clear a room of all its clutter and you throw away the old stained carpet and the broken chairs and the cracked mirror. And then you decorate the room by filling the cracks and painting the ceiling and papering the walls. What's the point of all that? Unless what is new then fills a room. Unless a new carpet is put down for people to walk on. And new chairs are brought for them to sit on and relax in and converse with each other and enjoy. Our baptism is a two-part process. It's a cleansing and it's a filling. John's baptism was only part one. However, it might have been only part one, but in John's day, people wanted it. They wanted preparation. They wanted a new start. They wanted a clean slate. They flocked to hear this charismatic preacher offering them freedom from what trapped them. So we pause again and look at this picture of George Floyd. Do we need forgiveness for our sin? Do we need a new start and a clean slate? Now, I'm talking to the white folk here, listening for a moment. When it comes to race, as individuals, as a nation, as a Western society, do we need forgiveness? Truthfully, maybe we're not that bothered because all this race stuff doesn't really affect us. We have all the privilege. Our ethnicity provides no barrier to our safety, our social standing or opportunity. But we may even be a bit fed up of someone banging on about racism again. Well, if you're listening in today and you're white, it's time to sit on the bank of the river a while and listen to John the Baptist and realize there is really quite a lot we need to be forgiven for. We may not have been actively racist, but the trouble is we haven't been actively anything. We've just carried on for the most part blind to our own advantage. And if you think I'm exaggerating, take some time to listen to a friend who doesn't share your skin color and ask them in what way they've experienced disadvantage. Because you see, John the Baptist, he says that entitlement counts for nothing. He said to his listeners, who were almost uh, certainly all Jews, he said, you're the children of Abraham. But so what? The ax is already at the root of the tree. <laughs> did, did you know that the, the only other use of baptism at the time of John the Baptist was for those converting to Judaism? So baptism was for Gentiles who wanted to become Jews. So can you imagine the great and the good of the Jewish world flocking to hear John the Baptist to be told that they need, in effect, to convert? Can you imagine that? Can you imagine the challenge to their sense of entitlement, how affronted they would be to told that their privilege counted for nothing? And what does that say for us today who are white? Maybe we too are in need of a conversion. Conversion to a cause of equity between white and black, all of us made in the image of God. 
Now, when the crowd felt the force of what John the Baptist said, they asked him, what should we do? And in reply, he gave them three instructions. The man with two tunics should share with the person who has none. Tax collectors should not collect more money than they should. And soldiers should not practice extortion or accuse people falsely. And it's quite interesting that despite John the Baptist's radical reputation and his willingness to challenge the powers that be, he doesn't call for rebellion. He doesn't promote a political ideology. He doesn't even tell people they're in the wrong job. The hated tax collectors can still be tax collectors. Soldiers can still be soldiers. All he asks for is uh, generosity, honesty, and justice. In the everyday, in work, in relationships, in responsibilities, John the Baptist says, be generous, be honest, be just. So be generous. If you have two tunics and you see someone without one, give one away. John Nolland is a biblical commentator and he says this, John the Baptist calls for a generosity in which everything beyond subsistence necessities is vulnerable to the claim of need. Everything beyond our subsistence necessities is vulnerable to the claim of need. We don't necessarily have to give all we have away, but we might be asked to give all away that is access to need. So be honest as well. Don't charge more than you should. Exhibit openness, integrity, and be just. Don't extort money. Don't accuse falsely. Generosity, honesty, and justice. Those are the three things John the Baptist is recommending, and it's, it's pretty straightforward, isn't it? But what if we exercised it in our everyday? And again, thinking of the big picture, what if our public life was marked by generosity, honesty, and justice? especially justice. In this country, we may not have policemen kneeling on the necks of black citizens. We do have the Windrush scandal. We do right now have skewed COVID death rates. A couple of months ago, we all thought COVID-19 was a great level that anyone can get, even the prime minister, even his chief advisor, but we, uh, we won't go there now. We're all thrown onto the mercy of God except that we now know even disease is not fairly distributed and that if you were black you were more likely to die from it and the reason is probably because if you're black you are socially disadvantaged and more likely on average to be poorly protected a low-wage key worker or you have an underlying health condition which again might be because you have been socially disadvantaged and i've been asking myself in recent days what am i doing then about these things. I mean, these are big matters to do with government policy and social structures, but what am I doing to foster justice where I am? Well, ultimately, there's a problem with John the Baptist's preaching. He preaches preparation, but it feels as if he is telling us to prepare for judgment. You know, the axe is at the root of the tree, and when the Christ comes, he'll save the righteous but burn up the wicked. He has a winnowing fork and will toss the chaff into the unquenchable fire. Luke says in verse 18 that John the Baptist preached the good news. It doesn't feel like good news, does it? It's repent or burn. It's be generous, honest and just or else. But remember, John the Baptist is the last of the Old Testament prophets. 
maybe he did just not he just didn't fully understand the messiah whom he predicted was about to come in fact actually we know he didn't because sometime later he was so confused by the lack of fire and judgment in Jesus's ministry that he sent some of his friends to ask Jesus look are you really the guy or are you not because the messiah when he comes comes differently to John's expectation and when Jesus himself steps off the riverbank and into the water to symbolize that he too submitted to the claim of God upon him. There was no fire. There was no thunder or lightning. No uh, winnowing fork fell from heaven. There was a dove. And a dove in the Bible doesn't stand for judgment. Quite the opposite. When Noah sent a dove out from the ark and it came back with an olive twig in its beak, it signaled the end of judgment. The flood had finished. When Jesus came, he brought grace. His ministry was begun not with fire, but with a dove. And we know, having read the rest of the story, that the climax to the word of God, the pinnacle of the whole Bible narrative, is not judgment, but Jesus' grace. Jesus' story is a story of grace, symbolised at the story's start by the descent of a dove, exhibited in the story's middle through encounter after encounter with people others despised, you know, a Roman centurion, an unclean woman, a mentally ill man, a Samaritan, a tax collector, a beggar, a prostitute, a leper, a common criminal, and anchored at the story's end with an act of unimaginable self-sacrifice on the cross. And that's why when we are baptised as Christians, it's not just about repentance. That's only part one. Does baptism symbolise a washing away of our sin? Yes, it does. But it also symbolises new life and the filling of the Spirit. It symbolises the arrival of grace. So what is our response to George Floyd's death and all the protests that have followed? The uh, conversations on social media? I was about to say the conversations you might be having, having in your offices. Well, if you were in your offices anyway. And my apologies again if I, if I speak to the white people listening for a moment. What is our response? Is it repentance for our part in a world that is broken by unequal opportunity? Well, yes, it should be. But it also has to be grace. The grace to bother, to listen, to black friends tell their story. The grace to actively go out of our way to include, welcome, encourage, promote, speak up for those denied our privilege. The grace to serve others and if necessary to sacrifice ourselves because we remember that grace is costly. The grace of Jesus embodied by us. So can we, you and me, really make a difference? Well, I think we have to try. So today, can I recommend that you make a list? Make a list of the ways you can demonstrate the grace of God in our unequal world. I've done it. It's five or six things for me. Don't just be outraged. Act on the side of grace.
And let me finish with this. Uh, I got an email this week from uh, a bicycle company. That's a company that makes bikes in Yorkshire. I happen to like their gear. So I signed up to their mailing list a few weeks ago. I've always got to have an illustration about bicycles somewhere. Now their first email from this mailing list arrived this week and it surprised me. It's only a small company. The company owner said this, it's taken a couple of days to articulate how I feel about this personally and how we at the company respond to what's going on in the world right now. I know that sounds ridiculous coming from a 43-year-old white, white middle-class British guy who currently only employs white people to work for and represent his brand, but I've come to realize that it's not enough to be simply not racist. To make things better from a negative situation, we need to be actively anti-racist. And the email went on to say what the company is going to do to address that. And this is from a bicycle company chief exec. What has a bicycle company got to do with George Floyd? Nothing and everything. It doesn't matter who you are, it's not enough to be not racist. We have to be anti-racist. And that's a well-worn phrase, no doubt you've heard it before, but it's a good one. So may the church not leave it to the owners of bike companies, but let's be vocally, actively, graciously anti-racist.